All right, Luke chapter 10. We, we covered already Martha and Mary. And I found a nice outline this week, and I don't know who to give it credit for. I like to give credit where credit is due, but I have this outline. I, I have no clue who wrote it. If you've got a lot of scholarly commentaries, you can look it up for me and see if you can find it. But chapter 10 was outlined this way, 70 spokesmen, one Samaritan, and two sisters. And I thought that's very easy to remember. If what's in Luke chapter number 10, 70 spokesmen, one Samaritan, and two sisters. So we've looked at the two sisters. Next week, we're going to look at the Samaritan. So today, I want us to focus on these 70 spokesmen with the, the title of kingdom ministers or even just ministers of the kingdom. Let's pray, and then we'll get into God's word together. Thank you, Father, for time together with the church around your word. Thank you for time together singing your praises. We thank you that while we're temporarily removed from where we usually gather for worship, you've given us a place. And Lord, help us to never be uh, complainers or griping about what you've provided for us. But we thank you for this unique time in our church's history. Lord, as we come to the time of the reading and preaching of your word today, we ask that you would bless it. We would pray as the old hymn says, all is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. So Father, we pray right now that you would work through your Holy Spirit and your word as only you can. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. As we begin here in verse 1, we find these 70 spokesmen and that Jesus gave them a job. Let's begin looking at verses 1 through 9 at the assignment that Jesus gave to them. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whether he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse nor scrip nor shoes and salute no man by the way. And whatsoever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if the Son of Peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. And in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. And into whatever, whatsoever city you enter as they receive you, eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. So we find here the assignment that Jesus gives to the seventy. He has sent out twelve at one point before, and now he's going to send out in the same fashion seventy to go and do this evangelistic work. And, and I would remind us as the church, now he has sent out the entire church. We've all received his great commission to go out and do as we find here. Preach the kingdom and heal the sick is specifically the task here. In verse 2, we find that as they go, they are to be praying. They are to be praying, asking God for more workers in this harvest. Then in verses 3 through 7, we see that they are to go traveling light and fast. And we'll get into more of that here in a moment. But basically the, the idea is don't be so bound down with the things of life that you can't do the, the eternal things that God has commissioned you to do. Verse 8 and 9 then, they're to preach the kingdom and heal the sick. 
Now, with this assignment, they're going to need some authority. And I praise the Lord as a preacher in the church that God has given us authority. The authority that I operate under is not my own voice. It's not my ordination. It's not my degree from school. It is the word of God. And you and I carry that same authority. With that, we have the indwelling of the Spirit of God. So with the Spirit of God and the Word of God, we operate in a similar authority. Well, I want us to notice in these verses the exact authority that Jesus speaks to these that He would send out. Notice verse 10. But into whatsoever city you enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same and say, Even the very dust of your city, which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which have been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shalt be thrust down to hell. He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. So Jesus gives them a job. He, he explains the assignment, but he doesn't leave them without authority to fulfill this job. And basically, the authority is this. Initially, reject those who reject you. That's the authority they are to operate in. There will be some that you come to their house and you say, peace be unto you. And the son of peace abides in that house and they'll say peace back. But he said there will be some who will reject you. Well, what are you to do? 10, 11, and 12. You wipe the dust from your feet from those places. This was a sign of their doom for rejecting Jesus. That's not easy in the inclusive world in which you and I find ourselves. Often we, we want to speak very little about doom and we want to speak very little about gloom and we want to spend lots and lots of time on beauty and forgiveness and heaven. And praise the Lord for those things. But in the end, when it comes right down to it, it's one or the other. It's not as if all will go in one direction or we can only wish it could be that way. So Jesus says those that He sends out here, you go under My authority. And in My authority, when they reject you, you reject them. When they receive you, you receive them. Then in verses 13, 14, and 15, He speaks of specific places who'd rejected Him. And as He spoke these words, you can almost feel as Jesus, is, as we're reading what He said here, He's being reminded of three cities of Galilee which had been more highly privileged than any others. They had seen Him perform His mighty miracles in their streets. They had heard Jesus teach them doctrine. Still, they utterly refused Him. The miracles He had done there, He says, had been done in other places like Tyre and Sidon. He says these seacoast towns would have plunged themselves into the deepest repentance. Because these cities of Galilee were unmoved by Jesus' work. His statement here is that their judgment will be more severe. I think we should understand that if it's true for them then, surely that's more, more so even for us now. We, we had the, the Holy Spirit who has come. 
We have Jesus who's gone to the cross. We have the whole completed Word of God speaking to us the plan of redemption, revealing it to us, beginning in, in Genesis and all through the Old Testament as a mystery of the secret things of God, but then in the New Testament, making clear to us what has happened. And then the, the letters to the churches near the end of the New Testament saying, see, this is what was supposed to happen, and it has. And you and I now live in this day of grace, this age of the church. And we live in this time where, well, if anyone's going to be held to a higher standard, surely it must be us. So Jesus initially says, the authority that I want you to go in is that authority. Reject those who reject you. Then in verse 16, he gives some more clarifications. Saying to reject his messengers is to reject him. He that heareth you heareth me. And he that despiseth you despiseth me. And he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. So basically, Jesus' word to them is, as you go, if they'll hear you, the effect on their lives will be that it is the same as that they were hearing Jesus Himself. And as you go, if, if they should reject you, the effect on their lives will be as if they were rejecting Jesus Himself. And then Jesus makes a very clarifying doctrinal statement at the end of verse number 16 there. To despise Jesus is to despise Him who sent Him. Who sent Jesus? God the Father. To turn against Jesus is to turn against God. There's no other name whereby we must be saved. Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Well, as we read on, we find here in the concluding verses of our portion of the text this morning is that the job that they were assigned and the authority which they were operating under brought them great joy. We see the joy of the disciples in verse 17 through 20. Notice those verses with me. And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are served unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding, and this rejoice not, that the spirits are subject unto you, but rejoice rather because your names are written in heaven. In verse 21 and 22, we see Jesus' joy. And then verse 23 and 24, the focus is turned back to the disciples. So let's read those verses as well. And he turned him unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which you see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. So this job brings the disciples joy. In verse 17, they are joyful, specifically that they have power over demons. You can imagine what that would be like for you. Should you encounter a demon and, and be able to cast it away or pull it out or run it off? What a miraculous and supernatural thing that must be. But Jesus reminds them here that even given that, they have greater ways to have joy. Now this is where it becomes even more applicable to us, the modern church. In verse 18, Jesus makes a statement there. He said, I saw Satan fall from heaven. In a way, this is him just laying the foundational statement that the Godhead has power over Satan. We must never forget that. That's reason to be joyful. 
And then in verse number 19, he says that he gives them power over the enemy. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. I'm going to make a personal preferential statement here if it'd be all right. Some of you give me a hard time because I don't have anything to do with snakes. Right here you find clearly in Scripture that they're devilish. They're, they're the enemy. I don't know how much clear Jesus can make it for us. I can't. I mean, I can cast out a demon, but I can cast out a snake. I can, I can handle that one. Probably the most important statement of verse 19, though, is nothing shall by any means hurt you. Jesus says here, don't just rejoice that you have power over the demons. Rejoice that you're sent by me, one of the Godhead. We have power over Satan himself, and that I've given you power over the enemy as a whole. Greater still, in verse 20, he tells them the preferential place to find your joy is that your names are written in heaven. Don't just rejoice that the spirits are subject unto you. Rather, rejoice because your names are written in heaven. What a wonderful thought. Often we will find joy or sadness based upon our earthly position. And that seems to come and go. But there's one thing that remains, and that's our heavenly position. What a great place to find joy. Then in verse 23 and 24, Jesus also reminds them of the joys of their earthly privilege. So yes, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. But he goes on to say here, many before you hope to live to see what you guys have experienced. Reminds me of the, the prophet. I think his name was Simeon or Simon. Who was the prophet after Jesus' birth who rejoiced when he saw the Messiah? Simeon? Oh, it's just a wonderful thing. The Bible lays out clearly. This is just, this is the word of the week, I guess. An old codger. Is that last Sunday we talked about that? Maybe it was last Wednesday. I don't know. But here's this guy. He just kind of waited around to see his Savior. And as they bring in Jesus, he just knows. I'm, so, I'm sure through the power of the Holy Spirit. But he just knows this is the one. And he, he holds the child up and he, he says his blessing upon him here. But he's just so joyful and excited that this has happened. He lived and waited his whole life for this thing to come to be. Jesus goes on to say there, there's been many prophets who desired to see this thing. Can you imagine being one of the Old Testament prophets? And you're having to preach to the people? You see, I preach to the people, but I also get to offer to the people some hope at the end. You're, you're, you're horrible sinners. You don't have to remain this way. You're living outside of God's will. But you can be inside God's will. But these guys, they simply had to say, you better repent or God's going to judge you. Remember what happened last Thursday? It could happen again tomorrow. They lived and waited and hoped to see this day. He even says there were kings who hoped to see this. They never did. The, the, the writer to the Hebrews said it this way. As he goes through what we would call the hall of faith. These great forefathers of our faith. And the writer to the Hebrews says this, these all died in faith, having never received the promise. They died hoping for something that they never experienced. Their eyes never saw. Their brains could never comprehend. 
So he says here to these 70 disciples that he sent out, recognize the joys of your earthly privilege. Don't just rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven and more so that you've lived to see the time where this could be the case. You're living in a day of unprecedented privilege. Now I want to lay that baseline there for somewhere we're going in a moment. Just simply to say to us, the church, we are living in a day of unprecedented privilege. But often... We operate as woe is me Christians simply because detail oriented things don't go as we'd want them to go. We grumble and we gripe and we're we're even disheartened. We lose faith. Why do we why are we this way? Has God left his throne? Has the book been stolen? Has Satan blotted some names out? Do we not live in the time of seeing and tasting grace? Surely we do. We have nothing but reason to rejoice. We live in an unprecedented time. But we, the church, we've been sort of, I don't know, coddled, rocked to sleep to bring out apathy. We've come to expect a level of organization within our religious beliefs that we like that better than we actually like the power that enables us to have the beliefs that we have. We mustn't forget that we live in this unprecedented time. The time that kings and prophets desired to see but never were able to. To hear the things that we hear and weren't able to hear them. We mustn't allow ourselves to get to the place and our living that we're, we're mostly just concerned are, are the demons listening to us or not? Are the demons subject to us or not? Jesus said, don't, don't let that be your end all. It's a wonderful thing. They were able to heal people because of that thing. But he says, don't let that be the cause or the absence of your joy. Rejoice because your name is written in heaven. And rejoice because you live in this time that many before you long to see and never were able to. Now that brings us back to 21 and 22, which I skipped previously. Because it's a different topic. Here we see the joy of Jesus. Now I don't want you to misunderstand what's going on here. Often we will see people stirred in the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures or even in our midst. And we'll say, well, they're really, they're really rejoicing. But it's a very special thing for us to read about Jesus Christ Himself, the very Son of God, filled with the Spirit and rejoicing. This, these are great verses. Look at verse 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank Thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that Thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent, and that Thou hast revealed them unto babes, Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. So full of the Holy Spirit, verse 21 begins, Jesus praises 
the works of the Father here. Now, I guess we could consider, is it just coming to light for Jesus? 100% God, but 100% man. Did it just come into His human mind, this understanding of things? I would argue with you, no, that's not the case based off of Luke's order of events throughout, throughout the book. Seems like it was already the case. You can all, go all the way back to his childhood when his, his mom said, where have you been? And he said, I've got to be about my father's business. So he would say then that he already understood. So why does he say what he says here in the way that he says here? Well, because he's just said to these he sent out and who've come back with rejoicing. Rejoice mostly that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then before them, he, he testifies in praise these very things. God, you hid the mystery of the gospel from the world's wise. But now you've revealed it through these babes. So like if you guys were the 70 here this morning and you're back with Jesus and you're saying it would be if Jesus was standing over in the corner and he, he said to us, to us all, you're ignorant babes. But not in an offensive way. He's simply saying, what a blessing it is to see you guys come back joyful. What is the Old Testament verse about this? He that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. That's why the church sings, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. And Jesus' point here is, it's not because you've reached some supernatural level of wisdom. Well, it is a supernatural level of wisdom. Let me say a superhuman level of wisdom. It's not because the, the worldly wise men has explained it to you and now you know. No, it's because God through His Holy Spirit and His Word has worked in you and then through you. What a wonderful thought. It calls Jesus Himself to rejoice. To bless the name of the Father. He goes on to say here, Father, I rejoice in You because You did this according to Your good pleasure. What is Jesus affirming there? In His worship, He's affirming the sovereignty of God. He's affirming the self-sufficiency of God. He is confirming here the ability of God to do as He pleases and He's revealing it to these 70 that when God does as He pleases, we all benefit from it. Romans chapter 8. For we know that all things work together for good to them who love the Lord, who are the called according to His purposes. You got that hung in your house somewhere, anybody? But Paul doesn't just leave it there. What do we know? Let me show you. Go to Romans 8. It's right in line with what Jesus is saying here this morning. We love Romans 8.28, but often we've never paid any attention to verse 29 or verse number 30, where He lays out specifically what it is that God does according to His good pleasure that Jesus is talking about here. So you see Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together. What things work together? Specifically, in this context, verse 29 says, For whom He, being God, did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Praise the Lord. 
Do you sit here this morning a product of that? Are you justified? Are you praising the Lord that you've been justified? That He, according to His good pleasure, has made you just as if you had never sinned? Do you sit here this morning willing to and waiting for being glorified someday? Oh, what a day! A glorified body! Man. (laughs) No more achy back. No more, if you guys got reached the point of life where you realize that everything you enjoy to do is bad for you somehow or another. What in the world? Doggone you, Adam and Eve. What a marvelous thought. Surely we can see why Jesus is rejoicing here. Luke captures it well for us. Jesus is saying, God, it's, it's wonderful to live and experience and see what you've done according to your good pleasure. We mustn't forget what he's done. This thing was planned out. It was set up. It was organized by God the Father. Paul wrote to the Ephesians as he began the letter. He said, God did this before he ever even formed the earth. I'll never forget the day. I'll never forget the day I was saved. 11 years old, March the 9th, 1994. I was heavily convicted by the Holy Spirit. I knew that I must be saved. And the Lord saved me that night. I'm excited for our baptism next Sunday. We have some young people who've been recently saved who want to be baptized. We have some adults that want to be baptized. Praising the Lord from that. We're going to let you hear from them next Sunday a little bit. Sorry, Drake, I had you all worked up this morning. Do you want to go ahead this morning? I told Drake to be ready this morning. Let's just go ahead and do it. Is it you're good? Why don't you stand? Drake came to me Wednesday night, told me he wanted to be baptized, and he we had a good talk. He explained to me his salvation, and I'm excited to baptize him. Do you want to say anything? Um, I'm excited to be baptized. Uh, Say everything the Holy Spirit wants you to right now. Amen. And then Drake, being a wise man, waited till now to be baptized because he wanted to. He just wanted to make sure it was right. And then, what did you say you were looking forward to? <laughs> I remembered it more than you. You were nervous. I was excited. He said, "I can't wait to take the Lord's table with the church." Praise the Lord! What a wonderful thing! What a wonderful... and you're how old, Drake? Thirteen years old. Speaks like a man. What's the point? The point is, the, the excitement you and I get, I've never been to a baptism that as the person comes up out of the water, what always happens? Every single time. Clapping. Yeah, you get hugged. You clap. You take pictures. Mama cries. <laughs> right, Mom? But every time the church is cheerful, why? Well, the same reason Jesus is cheerful here. He says, Lord, I sent these 70 out. Father, they come back and they're rejoicing and I'm rejoicing with them. This is exciting to see you work out your sovereign purposes according to your good pleasure. I remember when I was saved, but where I was going with that was 
I remember the day that the specific doctrines here in Romans 8 were explained to me to a point of, I said to myself, wow, you mean God did all that to save me? I am so unworthy. I am so undeserving. I didn't know He loved me that much. I didn't know that He cared about humans that much. Let me read it to you again. All these things work together for our good, right? That's what it says. For whom He did foreknow. In the Old Testament, we learn from the prophet there that before He formed us at our mother's womb, He knew us. O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. And then He predestinated us. Anybody taking a vacation this summer? Where are you going to go? Let me say that a different way. Anybody planning to travel this summer, you don't know where you're going to go yet, you're just going to get in the car and drive? Some of you have done that to a point, but we don't typically do that, especially with Biden-level gas prices. He did that. That was good enough, right? I mean, that wasn't too mean. All right. But you put it in ahead of time. This is where I'm headed to. And, and it's hard to do it with the modern GPS systems that we have now. But used to, you had to like go to mapquest.com. Remember this? You'd tell it where you're going. You had to hit print. You had to hope there was enough ink in the printer to... And you'd hold that sheet. And some of you even used maps before then. And you'd have to... My dad used to highlight the route on the map. And then me or my mom would sit there and we'd say, all right, you're gonna take, I think you're going to take a left coming up here. Wait, wait, no, that's not it. Oh, wait, that was it. And then, Give me that map. But you would put it in and tell MapQuest, this is where I want to go. And because that's where I want to end up. What were you doing? You're predestinating yourself. This is what Paul records of God here. Those he foreknew, he predestinated them to what? To be made like Jesus. To be conformed to the image of His Son. Anybody would admit this morning, just say, I'll admit it in the public assembly. Confession is good for us in the assembly. I'm not doing a great job at being a Christian. Anybody else? Gosh, I want to do better. I try so hard. Sometimes I, I try so hard that I feel like God's saying to me, would you stop doing everything you think you should do and just have a relationship with me and let me make you into what I want you to make you into? Would you stop doing everything you think organized religion expects and just let my Holy Spirit guide you? God has taken the load off of your shoulders and said here, from before the foundation of the world, I determined to make you like Christ. Now, I think some of us are harder cases than others. And maybe it'll be right up into that moment of glorification. We step out of this world and into that eternal presence of the Lord. That finally, we're made like Christ. But nevertheless, we have this assurance. He goes on to say in verse 30, those of us that were predestinated, He called us. My goodness. It remains to, to just, stays inside of me this, this time of my calling when, when God made sure to me, you, you, you're going to be saved. You need to be saved. Those He called, He justified. He forgave our sins. Then He also glorified I love the tense that Romans 8, chapter number 30 puts that in. You see, we will say, I'm longing to be glorified. And in our timing, we are. But in God's timing, 
The moment you were justified, you were also glorified. Praise the Lord. Back to Luke then. Jesus, full of the Spirit, praises the Father for these works. In verse 22, He also joys in the experiential knowledge that we find here that God is above human understanding. Notice what He says. All things are delivered to Me of My Father. And no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and He to whom the Son will reveal Him. So the Son knows the Father perfectly. The Son has revealed the Father to not the worldly wise man, but to the weak, the base, the despised people. Who? Those who have faith in Him. McDonald says, The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has fully told forth the Father. Praise the Lord. So Jesus calls these 70. He gives them assignment. He gives them authority to fulfill this assignment. And then in the return from doing this job, we find them with great joy. Well, let me apply this to the church because there's more here than simply our excitement over what we've read and come to understand this morning. We start all the way back at verse 1. And I want to remind you that we in the modern church are commissioned and sent as well. Jesus sent 12, then He sent 70, and now the entire church as a whole. So we can glean some things knowing that we've been commissioned and sent by the Savior from this passage for our own practice. We begin in verse 1 with the idea that He says, He sent 70 two and two before His face into every city and place whether He Himself would come. So he sent them in small groups. No one was to go alone. Now, one for sure doctrinal application we get from that is the Scripture teaches us that things should be confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses. But I want to give you just a little more touchy-feely application there. You don't have to do this alone. We are commissioned. We are sent to minister. We're ministers of God's kingdom but not by ourselves. You remember Elijah? He was depressed. He told God, he said, I'm the only one. And God said, no, you're not. I've got thousands more just like you. Christian, you might have come in this morning and thought to yourself, well, I'm in this thing alone. I'm all by myself. You're not supposed to be. God has given you this family of brothers and sisters in Christ. I love the verse that says, Anyone in this life who will give up father, mother, sister, brother, and I usually add in there cousins and aunts, said, I will restore you 100-fold in this life. What does that mean? Whatever sacrifices we must make for kingdom ministry, even and especially relational sacrifices, God's going to replace them because we're not in this thing alone. There are those who will lock arms and go through this fight with us. So this prevents loneliness in Christian ministry. If you battle with loneliness, the solution is sure. You need to use the gifting and the time of life that you're in to find someone else with a complementary gifting and a similar time of life and the two of you together minister on. And it's sad But as times of life change or as God's will is 
sort of finished and begins anew in other places, that those people change over time. We, during the Sunday school class this morning, sort of said our goodbyes to Pastor Eric and his wife, Grace. They've moved to Union City. They've led our deaf ministry since 2019, and they've, they've moved along. But we rejoiced because they've been training Brother Jason to kind of take that up. And Brother Jason stood up here this morning, and in his language, not in mine, I couldn't hear a word he said, Jimmy. <laughs> Just kidding, Jimmy. But in American Sign Language, he quoted to us the entire book of Daniel 3 in a way that we were able to then sort of teach ourselves the lesson, were we not? And that's just one example of how who we minister with in time is going to change. It was a sad day when Shanae and I told the church in Gainesville, Georgia, we're moving, we're leaving. And they said, please don't leave. We drove away, they were hanging onto the back of the truck. <laughs> Some of them said, Phew, finally. Right, Aunt Redona? Absolutely not. <laughs> Still some bitterness there. Who are you ministering with? I think we get so humanly attached that when that time ends, we sort of just kind of stop. We sort of like, we'll, we'll reminisce on the good old days and never move forward to what God would have us to be doing now. Don't do that. Don't be lonely and don't be ineffective in the ministry God has put you here for. You weren't saved at this time on accident. You're not a part of this congregation right now on an accident. God has you here for a purpose. He has you here for a reason. There's people here that He wants you to minister and serve alongside. So they went together. No one went alone. Secondly, in verse 2, we see that He told them to pray. He said unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray you the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. The praying multiplied the laborers for the harvest. Some of you do very hard manual labor for your job. It requires your body's muscles to do the work you do. There's a great premise there in getting that work done. You might say it a different way, but the way I was taught it was, Many hands make light work. Not M-I-N-I, -I, not small hands. M-A-N-Y. Many hands make light work. Meaning, the more people who are involved in that strenuous labor, the easier it becomes. We, as people of our culture, will kind of go in awe at different cultures like the, maybe the Amish or the Mennonites who will raise a barn in a day. Everybody gets in there and they do this thing together. Man, is that not a great illustration of what it's supposed to be like in the church? He sends them forth, but He says as you're going, be praying that the Lord would send more just like you into this work. Their prayer multiplied the labors. Secondly, I want you to understand that prayer brought the laborer under the authority of the Lord. How can you go do kingdom ministry when you're not under the authority of the King for whose kingdom you are ministering? You must be praying. Because as you pray and ask the Lord of this harvest to send laborers to His harvest, you're putting yourself in submission to Him as King and Lord. Warren Wiersbe wrote here, instead of praying for an easier job, they were to pray for more laborers to join them. And we today need to pray that same prayer. And he has a parenthetical statement he added to that quote. Please note that it is laborers, not spectators, who pray for more laborers. Too many Christians are praying for somebody else to do a job they are unwilling to do themselves. The third thing we notice here in verse 3 
is that we are sent as lambs among wolves. I know we like to think of ourselves as tigers or bears or something else, but, but we're just sheep. Nobody wants to buy. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I've always known you've had a voice. We must be wise in this regard. We are sent as lambs among wolves. We may be persecuted. We may even be killed. Vance Habner said, any man who takes Jesus Christ seriously becomes the target of the devil. Most church members do not give Satan enough trouble to even arouse his opposition. Would you go start a fight this week with the devil, not your neighbor? And don't tell me your neighbor is the devil. Because <laughs> if that's true, then it's on you. Because the Lord set you beside them to get them to become lambs. But I promise you this, if you begin to bring in the sheaves this week, you'll get this, the attention of the devil and his forces. Where truth is being declared, Satan will fight it. We should be careful if everything is just going just right. And instead of griping and grumbling and complaining when things go bad, we should just say, Lord, now, unless we know that we're in sin, but if we've been actively studying and spreading truth, then we should say, Lord, thank you for the opposition. Simply as confirmation that I'm doing what you want me to do. Lambs among wolves. Verse 4 then tells us we're going to have to take or make temporal comforts secondary for this eternal task. Carry neither purse nor script nor shoes and salute no man by the way. According to J.C. Ryle, the austere instructions that Jesus gave to his evangelists ought to remind us of the necessity of simplicity and unworldliness in our daily life. We must beware of thinking too much about our meals and our furniture and our houses and all those many things which concern the life of the body. We must strive to live like men whose first thoughts are about the immortal soul. We must endeavor to pass through the world like men who are not yet at home. And we are not overmuch troubled about the fare they meet on the road and at the end. Blessed are they who feel like pilgrims and strangers in this life and whose best things are all yet to come. Praise the Lord. When I was a young man in early 20s in ministry, one of the real treats we had at the church we were serving in at the time is the family had some property on Lake Hartwell, it's near nearby our church. And they had boats and jet skis and these things. And I very much enjoyed when they would invite us out and treat us to that. It was a, it was a wonderful time. I, Flipped it over and knocked Shanae off a jet ski multiple times. It was great. Now, I'll never forget out there enjoying that, seeing this boat come by. And it's fun to see all the different boats and all. They all have names, and it's unique to see all the different names. Some of them are funny, and some of them are pretentious. And you know how this thing goes. But I'll always remember there was a boat that went by, and the, the name on the back of the boat, the little phrase was, as good as it gets. And in that moment, I thought to myself, this is, this is great. We were, it was July 4th. We sat on a boat and watched fireworks. We had watermelon, barbecue, played in the water, got a sunburn that we didn't care about. 
all of the wonderful things of life. But the Lord later convicted my heart and said, this is wonderful. This is not wrong. I'm not telling you what you're doing on 4th of July is wrong. But the sermon is easy. This is not as good as it gets. There's a, there's a better day coming. We're still waiting on it. It's still yet to be, but this is not as good as it gets. So we must put aside the temporal, at least primarily, and, and focus on the eternal. Now, please don't stop you know, buying deodorant and toothpaste because of verse 4. Alright? Please. But let's not be so concerned with those things that it prevents us from ministering. Verse 5, 6, 7, and 8 then, we read about receiving hospitality. Sadly, a hard thing for Christians. In fact, we've kind of gotten so organized in our religion and full of our pride that we almost feel like we're doing something wrong if we receive hospitality that is offered to us. But here Jesus is clear. If we're ministering for the kingdom, then as laborers in that, we've earned what they're given to us, so we should receive it thankfully and take it. Notice these verses again. Whatsoever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Verse 5, verse 6. And if the Son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. So initially he just makes the point of make sure you're in a Holy Spirit home. That was what we'd say in our days. Verse 7, and in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. That point being, don't, don't hinder yourselves by you know, worrying about wearing out your welcome in that house, or if you don't like the way they cook eggs in the morning, trying to find a house that cooks better eggs. He says just, if they're there and they receive you, receive their hospitality while you're there ministering, because the ministry that you're doing is way more important than all the temporal things that you would be worried about. Verse 8, and whatsoever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. We took a mission trip when I was a teenager to Mexico to some mountain villages. And my mom packed me, this was pre-9-11. You know, you could walk right up to the gate with people at the airport. You could bring, I felt like back then, just bring whatever you wanted. Nobody cared what you brought on an airplane. So my mom packed me two large bags. They feel like they were as tall as this pulpit. One had my clothes and the deodorant and the toothpaste. The other had beanie weenies and little Debbie cakes and bottles of water. She was afraid I was going to starve to death or die because of being malnourished in Mexico. But I'll always remember the night that we sat down at a meal. You would go to these villages. You'd labor all day telling them about Jesus, asking them to come to an outreach meeting. You'd have the church service that night as outreach. It was wonderful to see people who had not really ever heard the gospel or, you know, had kind of, God had used this time to, for them to embrace the gospel with tear-filled eyes be converted and their lives changed. It was a heavily um, Catholic area, so much so that they were sort of still in where we've kind of come and passed this whole, like, Catholic or Protestant thing. It's not, we're not fighting about it anymore here. There, that was still a big thing. In fact, you better be Catholic or else... And you'd see people show up that, that you'd met during the day and you'd talk to them about Jesus. You'd shared the gospel with them. And they'd show up to church that night ready to be saved. And they'd have everything they owned with them. And we think, this is, this is odd. What a, 
What are these people doing? And the, the pastor there, the Mexican pastor, he would say to us, if they get baptized tonight, they can't go home. Their family won't have them back. Yeah. Folks, are we not living in a great place, in a great time? It's a little different than that, is it? But it never failed. Each of the little villages you went to would throw a feast for these rich Americans who had come to their town. And that's kind of how they considered us. You know, we had this white skin and these neat looking clothes that were different than theirs and all. And so we'd show up and they'd set up these makeshift tables and they'd put out food. And I love Mexican food. Absolutely love Mexican food from White Bluff, Tennessee. <laughs> I'd never had it from Romita, Mexico before. The guy across the table for you cut into his burrito. It smelled wonderful. It looked wonderful. He cut into his burrito and there sat a chicken foot. Entire. The next guy over had the beak. I had a lot of beanie weenies that week. But maybe this is a little what Jesus is saying. There's a better application there, but you know, if you, if you are going to be receiving hospitality, you better receive what is set before you. This is not me setting myself up for you to joke with me when I come to your house to eat now. You do not serve chicken feet and beaks otherwise, so don't do it for my benefit. That would be mean. But Jesus says clearly here, receive the hospitality. Brother Rye would always tell a story about a man in the church way back who would kill things and bring them to Brother Rye for meat. Bring the preacher some things. Some of you still do that. You bring the eggs. I appreciate the eggs and milk and whatever else. My son's got into killing me meat. The turkey nuggets are pretty good. Thank you, Miss Alma, for teaching Jack how to cook turkey nuggets. They were wonderful. Brother I said one day a guy brought him a pair of squirrels, kind of tied the tails together. They were cleaned, but he, he brought him this pair of squirrels. And I said, really? And he said, yep. And I'm thinking, like, where have I moved to? Is this going to be a thing for me? What, what's going on? He said, ah, it was years ago. I said, well, what did you do, Brother I? And he said, oh, I received him and I thanked him for him. I said, yeah, but then what did you do? He said, I drove to the county line and threw him out the window threw them out the window and did not eat these. So probably we catch Brother Ryan some sin here, according to verse 8. I won't hold it over his head, though. Verse 9, and we're coming to a close. Heal the sick. And heal the sick that are therein and saying to them, the kingdom of God has come nigh to you. I think it's important here that we realize in Jesus' assigning them this task, He gives an equal measure to the physical well-being and the spiritual. Now for sure we would understand someone's eternal spiritual fate to be the most important thing. And I don't think Jesus is demeaning that at all. But if we're not careful as Christians, we'll almost become bitter and crass at people who have other needs because we just want to focus on the spiritual. Well, we're, we need some groceries. Well, let's pray about it. Well, that one's simple. Just go buy them some groceries. Well, I don't have the money. Then come to church at the next meeting place and we'll take up some money and give it to you and you can go buy them some groceries. I remember reading a book about a guy who was the recipient of church benevolence when he was a kid. And he said he, he always loved it at Christmas time. They, the church would always come by and they'd have the best Christmases because the church would bless their family. He said, but the one thing I always hated, he said, they made me get saved again every single year before I could have Santa Claus. Let's not be this way. Jesus says here, go and... Preach the kingdom to them. And while you're going, heal their sick. 
Phil Riken writes here, Jesus also gave these evangelists the power to perform miracles so that they could minister to the body as well as to the soul. There was an immediate blessing to everyone touched by their ministry, but it also had a f- further purpose. It confirmed the truth of the message. When people saw these evangelists healing the sick, they knew that that, what they said was true. So to the church now, I would say, let's be just as sensitive to the physical as to the spiritual. And let's be just as confirmed in our message because of our faith. How do we expect the lost and dying world to even want to hear our message if we're not even sure of the faith of it on our own? Do we not believe that God is a healer? Why do we not come to Him more? Why do we not come to Him first for our healing? And it's okay if the healing is not brought. Scripture is clear on that, that there will be times when there's things that for our own personal growth or for God's glory and amongst those around us, we may not be healed. But I think we've gone completely in the wrong direction there as the modern church. We, we need to be that weird church in town that tells that story about so-and-so being miraculously healed. We want to be a little more decent and in order than that. I think it's affected our message. There's no fear of God among the lost in our communities. There's no faith in God among the lost in our communities. Both of those things water down our message before we ever even get to speak it. I also want us to point out the simplicity of ministry here. We've awfully overcomplicated what we would call church these days. Jesus just said, preach the good news and heal the sick. Can you imagine if we were just accomplishing those two things in this area? What a blessing it would be to people. And I know you could sit there and think, but, but what about this? And, and what about that? And I'm not going to name the things because I don't want to hurt your feelings. But in reality, what is ministry? What should be the church's ministry? Preach the good news and heal the sick. And there's a lot involved under that heading of healing the sick that would still be ministry. Chicken soup is good for a sick man. Or mac and cheese. So we can do a lot of things in that regard. My points being, we don't have to do a lot of these elaborate things or complicated things. If we just do the simple things, I think they would keep us busy enough. And I think we might actually find joy in doing those versus the frustration we find and trying to do the things we think are good ideas that often don't produce the results that we want to see produced and then leave us with some sort of spiritual, physical, emotional toll because we actually didn't do the things God asked us to do that would have brought us joy. We minister in this way. We may be refused. Jesus is clear here in verse 10 and 11 and 16. Go on to the next place. But we will be filled with joy. Verse 17, verse 20. And then never forget verse 24. We are living in the most glorious time on earth since man's fall in the garden. And then behind that, you can just add this one point. Still, the best is yet to come. Let's stand and pray. What is your response to the gospel? You're here now. 
You've heard it. You're, you're like those cities that saw Jesus' miraculous wonders done. You heard Him tell about the kingdom is now and, and, and just refused Him. I would encourage you this morning not to refuse Him. The logic is clear here. You fall under that same category of those who should be prepared for a harsher judgment. And then to the church, I would say, as we've made our decisions for Christ, as we've embraced Him as Savior and Lord, we need to do whatever we can to get the good news to other people. We need to pray. We need to serve. We need to go. We need to live out the doctrine that we say we believe. We must not forget the urgency of the situation. People are dying and going to hell or heaven every single day. So what are you going to do with this message that you've received from the King? How will you labor to share it with others? Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for time together in the Word with Your church. These are very convicting verses. But they're also very inspiring verses to go out and do. Help us not to be hearers of the Word only, but to also be doers. Bless this time now as we respond to Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.